Welcome to Fierce City, where we will delve into the people, places and events from the history of the greatest capital city in the world and our home, London. I'm Satu. And I'm PJ, and we are your hosts on this journey to discover the lesser-known history of London. Today, we're going to hark back to the long time ago past of 2015 and tell a story of a gang of hardened geriatric criminals who pulled off one of the greatest heists London has ever seen. And this is probably the closest Satu and I will ever get to a true crime kind of episode. Uh, That's because I'm against true crime, isn't it? Well, you say that, but you enjoyed that This American Life podcast on the feather crime. The feather heist. I thought you were going to say serial. I was like, yes, we're podcasters. We've listened to serial. No, honestly, if you like this episode about heists, which is obviously TBC, this feather heist story is wild. And the only reason I don't think we should do a podcast on it is because it happened in Tring. Just outside London. Yeah, yeah. so it's a bit outside of our remit. But um, yeah, This American Life, the feather heist, you have got to listen to it. It is a good one. This American Life are great. I, I love true crime podcasts personally and I like Court Junkie is a really good one and also Criminal with Phoebe Judge. I did listen to some of the gentle ones of Criminal like the one about the tree. This is a story of proper South London gangsters and their life of crime that culminated in taking on one of the most secure vaults in one of the most well-guarded areas in London. If you're expecting glamour though you will be left wanting as at least one of our antagonists decided to get the number 55 bus to the scene of the crime. No like blacked out windows going on there. Yeah, it's so British. It's got like no kind of similarities with an American Ocean's Eleven heist. Literally none. And as we're going to hear they're not like running around dodging lasers. They're like taking their diabetes medication and ambling towards the vault. So Come along with us as we travel back to the City of London and the Hatton Garden heist. Now Hatton Garden today is probably most well known amongst Londoners as the premier shopping street for engagement rings. For those not in the know, Hatton Garden isn't a lovely green space, but rather is the name of a kind of grey, gloomy street smack bang in the centre of the City of London. But hiding behind those boring facades are glittering treasures, diamonds and precious jewels, which was a fact well known to the rich jewellery shoppers and the professional criminals alike. On the morning of the 7th of April 2015, Kelvin Stockwell arrived at his place of work, the Hatton Garden Safe Deposit Company, where he was employed as a security guard. It was just after the Easter bank holiday weekend, so no one has been there for a few days. Kifa Kamara, the office manager, was already there, and he said something to Kelvin about a break-in? Surely not. Super secure vault in Hatton Garden, full of millions of pounds of jewels. Kelvin went downstairs into the main area of the office. The door had been kicked in. In the room that led to the company's impenetrable vault, (laughs) there was this massive hole in the concrete wall. Kelvin legged it up to the outside yard to call the police. There had been a major robbery in one of London's most secure vaults. And while Kelvin didn't know this at the time, he had just a day or so earlier come extremely close to rumbling the burglars and preventing the whole crime. Oh. I feel for him when he found out millions of pounds worth of golden jewels had been stolen from the vault. So how did Hatton Garden get London's attention as a place to be for precious metals? And why is it even called Hatton Garden? Is it a garden, PJ? If you're walking down modern-day Hatton Garden, you'll be forgiven for totally missing a tiny little alley in between two jewellers, leading to the pub The Old Mitre Tavern. And this pub was built by B. 
Bishop Goodrich of Ely in 1546 as a place for the workers of a nearby palace of Ely to drink and relax. The land where the pub is built is actually deemed to be part of Cambridgeshire, which is where Ely is located. In fact, the pub was governed by the licensing laws of Cambridge, not London, until as recently as the 1960s. And uh, that's boring, but actually not boring, because it turns out that robbers would supposedly run into the old mitre to escape the police, because the police weren't allowed to go outside of London into Cambridgeshire. It's like an embassy. It's so fun. I love that idea. This pub was once part of the beautiful grounds of this Palace of Ely, and was said to have been built around a cherry tree. And this location would become famous as the place Elizabeth I apparently danced around said cherry tree with her lover, a Mr Christopher Hatton. Hatton was a favourite of Queen Elizabeth and was known to be a handsome and tall fellow. She had a lot of favourites of that kind, didn't she? And I bet they were all handsome and tall. We're doing a lot of razy eyebrow. Like Elizabeth, Hatton never married, and that kind of added fuel to the rumour, which uh, was persisted by people like Mary, Queen of Scots, that Elizabeth and Hatton were lovers. Or maybe they were just really good friends who liked to dance around cherry trees together. Much like us. Honestly, I can see us doing that. Elizabeth persuaded, by which I mean she told, the bishops of Ely to lease Christopher Hatton land close to the palace, and therefore Hatton became a landowner and neighbour of the palace. After Hatton's death in 1591, his family began building on the street where he owned the land, and that became known as Hatton Street. Over the next couple of centuries, houses were built, and they were for kind of well-connected city professionals, and it would find its name then as Hatton Garden. So by the 19th century, Hatton Garden was like an archetypal Dickens-esque street, and I use Dickens because he actually lived close by to Hatton Garden, and from the famous musical and book, Oliver Twist. <laughs> and D- a Disney movie, Oliver and Company, of course. Of course. Is that where the Oliver was a dog? The, uh, yeah. The location of Fagin's Lair was actually meant to take place uh, about a stone's throw from where Hatton Garden is. So it was a bit of a dump, probably, then, because that's like a slum in the, in the musical. They're like in a teeny attic, all the orphans. Yes, it wasn't on Hatton Garden. It was just around the corner. <laughs> it makes all the difference. The street obtained its legacy as the place for the gold and diamond centre of London by the end of the 19th century when De Beers Consolidated Mines was founded in 1888 and it decided to sell all its diamonds through Hatton Garden, starting a trend which spread down the street. Hatton Garden specialised in diamonds, gold and platinum, while nearby Clerkenwell was full of silversmiths. Up until the Second World War, much of the trading happened on the street or in coffee shops. After the war, the focus shifted to a retail trade from wholesale, and about 60 shops and 300 different companies appeared by the 1950s. So it went from this kind of street trader with precious jewels to this much more conventional shopping street. So Something that I think is um, really interesting part of Hatton Garden history is that a lot of the traders were of Hasidic Jewish faith, which is quite relevant to our story because Easter and Passover is like when the heist happens and like where are people at basically like why is it so quiet that people can sneak around and do this I read a really good book I read an entire book about like the almost the Jewish history of Hatton Garden which I'll now summarize in one sentence for this podcast if you want to read it it's by Rachel Lichtenstein and she um, talked about her own family history and like her family friends who were like Jewish jewelers And her kind of older male relatives had been Jewish men who'd fled during the Second World War from like the continent to the UK where they would be safe. And like your only portable 
valuables you had like gold and diamonds and jewels so like people brought these like tiny quantities of valuable things with them and um, settled into like the jewelry trade i suppose also because they may not have been very trustworthy of the institution and the government so so liquidity wasn't as important maybe having belongings that you could keep safe isn't that what liquidity is? Liquidity means it's cash, it's readily available. Oh, right, got got it, yeah. So, like, portability of things that, you, like, yeah, even with money, you're relying on, like, the state system, but there's something about gold that it doesn't really, like, lose its value, does it? Like, we've found gold valuable for all of time. But something really specifically interesting about the vault for me is this idea that it's sort of a place which is outside of the authorities. People keep things there because they want to have personal safety and security you know that they're making their own efforts to keep things safe and um, these are like the tools of people's trades it's not just like billionaire bankers putting their rolexes in there these are jewelers themselves who are putting like the diamonds they will use in their work into this vault and that is another reason why this weekend was so important because obviously everyone was away at easter and as you just said rather than keep their jewels in their shop mm. where it could easily get stolen they will go to the hatton garden safe deposit company and secure their goods. Thinking they're perfectly safe in this, like, allegedly impenetrable vault. So when somebody says a vault, to me, I kind of think of Scrooge McDuck and, like, jumping into the money. I do. That's one of my life's dreams. This vault was only the size of a small room. It was tiny. Yeah, and the safety deposit boxes are so small, they're, like, shoebox-sized. Because, obviously, really tiny diamonds are really valuable, but they're miniature. Like, you don't actually need to rent loads of space. And one of the benefits of it being smaller is they could actually make it really secure. And again, like you said, Ocean's Eleven earlier, like, you don't need all those things to make something really, really secure. It was enormously effortful to get into this place. So um, the people who rented the boxes just had these boxes with their own like fob and security code, which is plenty. They would go into this vault in the basement of 88 to 90 Hatton Garden with bulletproof glass and like biometric data security. There were actually like lasers and motion sensors attached to like a central system and allegedly armed response teams ready to deploy. It was very much the Titanic of jewellery vaults in the sense that it was meant to be impenetrable and it was not. (laughs) Well, let's meet the um, Leo and Kate of our story then (laughs) uh, in the gang of individuals, the motley crew that pulled off this great heist. They weren't exactly a cast of glamorous professionals, all specially chosen for their individual skills. Rather, it was like a jumble of South London career criminals whose average age was over 70. I'd agree they're not glamorous, but I will allow that they are professionals and they were chosen for some ability to stand there. Well, they are career criminals. So, yeah, I mean, their CV might not be the best, but it is at least professional criminal. Yeah. And, you know, within the industry, that's what you're looking for, isn't it? The brains behind the operation was 76-year-old Brian Reader. He's the visionary here. He was a veteran of previous famous heists, including one called the Brinks Mat Robbery, which is famous in the circles of people who write books about this kind of thing. And that netted £26 million worth of gold. He was also a South Londoner, which is our area of town. And he grew up in Deptford, very historic area, which is sort of east along the river from the centre of town. And where you used to live. I did used to live there and I grew up in the Docklands. So um, all of these people are very familiar types. And you're also a career criminal as well. (laughs) Don't tell people. So when Hatton Garden Safe Deposit Limited first opened up its shop in the 1950s, Brian Reader was just a teenager in the post-war recession of South East London. His life of crime began early, 
out of necessity, but also because Reader seemed to have a natural talent for robbery. He was in prison as often as he was out of prison, and he became known as a master cutter by uh, the Flying Squad. What does that mean? A small seg here. The Flying Squad are a squad of specialist police officers in London tasked to solve serious high-value robberies. Back in 2015, if you can remember those days of yore, Brian Reader was assembling his gang to pull off the crime of the century. He'd been obsessed with this for years. He'd really planned it out and imagined it and like daydreamed about it with his friends in crime. A massive robbery of the place in Hatton Garden where the brightest jewels shone hidden away in their safety deposit box was his aim. Unusually for professional criminals who tended to stick to their local mates, he had a friend in North London called Terry Perkins, who was just 67. So a spring chicken. Perkins met Reader in the 1980s, and Perkins' first big robbery took place on his 35th birthday. He was a kind of set man celebrated for his efficiency and precision when it came to crime. A former associate described Terry as a complete pro. He is steely determined and he always does exactly what he's supposed to do. Which I suppose is not bad TripAdvisor review for a criminal. That's true. And do you know what? It's not like you can go to university for this. So you have to like skill up on your own. Well, it didn't stop him getting arrested. And he too spent most of his life in prison. But these old school criminals banded together over the fact that they didn't like this new kind of drug market which began in the 1980s and 90s. And they became nostalgic for good old fashioned Robin. Reader and Perkins, whilst in jail, had always spoke about pulling off a job in Hatton Garden. What convinced these two men in 2014 that the time was ripe for their greatest heist? Maybe it was because Brian Reader's beloved wife had recently died and his life had become a bit listless. You can imagine him knocking around the house, not much to do. Also, uh, Terry Perkins may have snapped because his daughter was conned at Hatton Garden and bought an engagement ring with fake diamonds in it. So maybe it was personal. But I think more than likely they just really craved that one last job. Like, I think you do get addicted to things like that, don't you? Like, they talk later about the adrenaline rush of it. They must have been craving that. But who knows, ultimately. These two older gents were not going to be able to break into a steel and concrete vault on their own. It's a physical job. There's no like, oh, I'll do some ninja moves and like get yeah, in. Like, they can't hack it. It's properly yeah. breaking into a big steel vault. Yeah. They needed a team and they also needed funding. So one fascinating addition to the crew, and genuinely love this detail, is Basil. As a matter of politeness, Reader and Perkins had reached out to the crime family who operated slash operate, out of Hatton Garden. The envoy for the crime family gave them some money up front to buy the necessary tools, which are like big industrial tools, and also said the family would send someone along to just help out. This was Basil, and he was also tasked with collecting something special from the vault. Reed and Perkins didn't have much choice but to say yes to this. So with their funding and Basil on board, they recruited some more people to their team. First up was 60-year-old Danny Jones, who was an other ordinary professional criminal, but one who interested himself in police forensics to protect himself, or at least he'd read a book called Forensics for Dummies. (laughs) Can you believe they make that? He was a successful criminal who was actually famously tight, um, despite him living in a £2 million mansion in North London. But that's how you get a £2 million mansion. And stealing lots of things. (laughs) Yeah, but not then spending it on stupid stuff, investing it in property. 
Next was 74-year-old Kenny Collins, generally considered a dim but useful man, even though all the while he was hiding the fact that he had a bad hip, which saw him use a cane most of the time, despite the rest of the gang not being aware of that whatsoever. Wow. Another was Huey Doyle, who was a little bit like a fish out of water, being the only one of the gang without a criminal record. And finally, the last recruit was 58-year-old Carl Wood. Now, Wood was the dark horse of the crew, and not many people knew him. He suffered badly from Crohn's and he had debts up to his eyeballs. I actually feel for him. Like, they've all got their struggles, but you don't want to be doing bank robberies with Crohn's and a lot of stress. My heart bleeds. He was actually obviously very keen to get in on this heist because he had these financial troubles to ease. All of them gathered together, but the mysterious Basil was still yet to turn up. Each man brought his own special skills to the table. And uh, yeah, we should be clear because we're talking about them as older men, in some cases disabled. It makes them sound like they maybe would be mellow, not sort of like aggressive people. But they were lifetime criminals who had been involved in like serious crimes all the way up to murder. Despite this, Reader gave them all very strict instructions that for this job, there should be no violence. Now, that wasn't because he was a pacifist, but rather he was well-versed in the criminal justice system. And he knew that the punishment for any robbery that involved violence or threat to human safety attracted the big-ticket sentences. Conversely, robberies where there were no victims or kind of threats could not really be prosecuted as strictly. Over the next few months, the gang met at the pub to discuss strategy, and they carried out reconnaissance at Hatton Garden. On the 2nd of April 2015, after arriving by various means, including the 55 bus, as you mentioned earlier, the crew all arrived at Hatton Garden. It was Easter weekend, and Hutton Garden was quiet that night, all traders having gone away for the holiday. The crew donned high-visibility jackets, and they kind of looked like contractors working on some kind of construction project. So they didn't look totally out of the ordinary. You wouldn't think anything of it, would you? Also because Crossrail was going on... Absolutely, and that would become important as well. The vault we're talking about was in the basement beneath 88 at 90 Hatton Garden, and it had its entrance on the corner of the road. So now, enter stage right, Basil. <gasps> Basil, not seen previously, brazenly walked up to the front entrance door and he was covering his face from the cctv camera so no one knew who he was he's super smart so he like has like a bag over his shoulder which he knows will cover his face he knows everything about every camera every lock on every door in this building like the man has knowledge so he just walks up to the front door and he had a key Mm -hmm. he let himself into the front door where'd he get that key from he some way then made his way through a key code system inside into the main part of the building. And again, we don't know how he had the key code. From the inside, he could open a rear fire escape and let all the others in. Basil's as close as you get to like a Hollywood bank robber here who just like hacks his way into the mainframe and opens the doors and things. So the gang quickly start unloading their extremely heavy kit, which includes some black plastic wheelie bins uh, from the back of the van, Reader is already struggling for breath, and they've hardly started, so he hangs back from helping. Kenny Collins, our dim but useful man, goes off to take his place as the lookout across the street, and the rest of the crew move inside. While the others dragged the kit down a flight of stairs into the back of the building, Basil and Jones went inside. 
Basil shows off his skills again here, fiddling with the electronics on the lift so it would stay stuck on the second floor. Like, again, how do you even learn to do that? But obviously these guys were not going to be like climbing up and down a lift shaft, so they've brought a portable ladder. They leave a sign that says, out of order, on the wall by the lift, just in case someone does come by. Cover their tracks, yeah. Yeah. Basil and Jones climb down into the basement. In yet more, straight from the movie's hacking action, Basil cuts off the alarm's GPS transmitter and snips a wire that leads to a metal gate out into the back of the building where the guys have got the big equipment out of the van. This gate was all that separated the basement room they were standing in from the courtyard full of criminals. When the wire was cut, they could just pull the gate open with their hands and they were in. But, unbeknownst to the gang... This aerial transmitter on the alarm hadn't been the only way to trigger the alarm. And when they opened the gate, a signal was sent to the vault's security company, which triggered an automatic text to the police to tell them an incident was occurring. Surely that's endgame. <laughs> you would think so, because armed response team must be on their way. But no, nothing happened. And just outside in the office area of the basement vault, the crew then smashed open a wooden door and cut through a metal gate using a machine called an angle grinder. Uh, Should we expose our ignorance again? We googled angle grinder extensively. What is it? A big cutting device. That's the one. So now they had one final task, and that was getting through the two-foot thick concrete wall of the vault to reach the steel cage inside containing the treasure. Brian Reader was on top of the world. Years of planning and organisation down the pub had finally culminated in this moment. He and the crew unzipped a huge canvas bag to reveal their most important piece of equipment so far, a huge industrial drill the size of a person. With this, they planned to drill three holes in a row in the concrete to make a letterbox-style hole that a man could just about crawl through. They lined the drill up to the wall and got to work. The noise was phenomenally loud, and the crew started to get freaked out. Even though it was the night of Easter weekend, surely someone's going to be around to hear this. Luckily for them, the Crosswell project we mentioned before was being built nearby that weekend, and all the residents had been warned that there'd be construction noise. And even more luckily, no one at the security company or the police had yet noticed that warning text. Two or three hours later, the first hole was drilled. Holding this drill up was exhausting work, and these slightly geriatric burglars were struggling. Around this time, the police finally noticed (laughs) that alarm text, but they decided it was a low priority, and they decided to get somebody in the security company to send someone to the vault to take a look. And at 1.15am in the morning... Kelvin Stockwell drove to the outside of the building. Meanwhile, eagle-eyed watchman Kenny Collins was fast asleep. (laughs) The men in the basement heard Kelvin's car pull up and they went still. But they weren't that bothered, because they knew that Kenny would have piped up on the walkie-talkie if there was a problem of some kind. Kelvin took a look around. Everything looked fine and normal. There was no sign of a break-in. So he went home, thinking it was just a false alarm. Adding further to the close call that, unbeknownst to them, they had just experienced, just a couple of minutes after Kelvin was there, the CCTV outside catches Carl Wood popping out the back for a cigarette. He could have busted the whole thing open at that moment, but by pure luck, the heist was still on. So now, by 5am, they had drilled three holes, and there was a man-sized hole in the concrete wall. But there was still one last obstacle. 
the steel wall of the cage that formed the actual vault itself. Now, they'd brought another machine, which was a water-powered ram. <laughs> what? What's that like? Oh, goodness knows. Just a big ram. <laughs> but it was meant to kind of fire at the wall and kind of knock it through. Reader was the one to press the button. It didn't start at first, but eventually they got it going. Although after an hour, it had made no impression on the wall. Perkins insisted they speed up the ram or it wouldn't work, but this resulted in it breaking down completely. They then tried to bash at the steel wall with sledgehammers, but they couldn't get an angle through the hole in the concrete. It just all wasn't working, and they were exhausted. At this point, Carl Wood started to get really angsty, and he was screaming aloud in frustration. Reader reluctantly said it might be time to admit that it wasn't working and just give up. Basil, who had been sitting quietly in the corner, not helping, just observing, stood up. He explained that giving up was not an option because the family would be very disappointed. I can imagine that disappointment from the family isn't your standard kind of disappointment. No, it's a different kind of disappointment where you don't feel like you've just let down the school spirit. It's more like you don't get to live in England anymore. Or even be (laughs) alive. They would have to get more equipment and come back that night. So this is the early hours now. He wants them to come back that night after having spent the day stealing extra equipment. They had no choice but to comply. Uh, They were really afraid of him and abandoned the vault, tracing their steps all the way back to the street with all the destruction left in their wake. So can you imagine psychologically you spent Mm. all of this time trying to get into this vault? You Mm. get to the last little membrane before getting in and then you have to go. You have to leave. For the entire day as well. It's just so counterintuitive. You just feel like, how can that be part of what a robbery is? Like, all right, let's just have like 12 hours of downtime and pop back again later. So dazed, they all headed back to Kenny Collins' flat in Islington. Minus Basil, of course, who slipped off into the morning light. When they sat down at the flat, Brian Reader told them he just couldn't go on. He felt close to dropping dead, and that wouldn't help an already dangerous job. I'm just thinking, like, this. he's so old, he's 76. My dad's not even really allowed to go into the attic anymore. <laughs> Which is probably a good reason why the others reluctantly accepted that Reader wouldn't be joining them later. This was despite the fact he was the one who had set up the whole thing in motion and was their leader. Reader then headed home, leaving the rest of them to go find a new pump to destroy that final layer of the vault. One of the things about the original pump is, didn't they like strategically steal it from a building site to avoid a paper trail? I didn't know that. Yeah, but with the new one, they just had to go into a shop and buy one. So amazingly, somehow, that evening at 9pm, the crew once again arrived back at Hatton Garden. Nervy Carl Wood couldn't stop mouthing off about Basil. He'd become convinced it was all a trap, and if they went back to the vault, they'd find the police waiting for them. When they turned up and found no Basil waiting for them, these suspicions seemed to be confirmed, and even more suspicious, the fire escape door to the back courtyard, which they'd propped open, was now firmly shut. Seems Dodge. Wood freaked out. He told his partners in crime to F off and panic stomped off. It was too much for him. He had had enough. So we're now two members down. Yeah. But Basil actually showed up not long after Carl Wood stomped off. Basil again let himself through the front and just like the previous day, let everyone in through the fire escape. So far, so good. Finding no police and their trail of destruction untouched, they went down to the basement 
although this time so much more deflated in comparison to the previous night. This time the hydraulic ram did not let them down, presumably because it was brand new and not just stolen off a dodgy old building site. After 24 hours of graft, the last barrier between them and their treasure fell down after one last hammer of the ram. There were 1,000 safety deposit boxes in the room. Basil slipped right through the hole in the concrete wall and into the vault, followed by Danny Jones. So just to check in with who's actually in the room at this stage, it's Basil, it's Danny Jones, Terry Perkins, that's it. Yeah. Because Kenny Collins' lookout is probably fast asleep across the road. We've lost Brian and we've lost Carl. And we mentioned Huey Doyle in the introduction, but he is part of it, but he's one of the people who helps to like disseminate stolen goods. So he's not even there. This has literally just been Danny and Terry Perkins like holding this hydraulic ram. Jones had a list of boxes that he was to smash open with his angle grinder. The first box he grabbed had a cassette tape in it. Ooh, mysterious. I find this the most intriguing thing. Imagine what was on that cassette tape. But to him, this wasn't valuable, so he just chucked it aside. A man of no imagination. And interestingly, the family had told them that they could steal everything on the right-hand side of the vault, but they weren't to touch the other. Which is so, obviously, maybe that was all the family's stuff. Oh, right. Oh, oh my gosh, that makes perfect sense. While Danny Jones was filling his swag bag with gold, cash and fine jewellery, Basil was looking for something specific. He found the box, which he handled carefully, pulled it out of the wall and slipped it into his bag. Basil slid back through the hole in the wall and set himself back down again to watch the heist. Meanwhile, Jones was shoving the valuables and Perkins was checking them, taking only the best. Suddenly, Basil stood up, smiled, said goodbye and left. The only thing he did before he walked out of the building was take the CCTV hard drive, a nice bit of insurance for Basil and the family. After emptying 70-odd boxes, Perkins and Jones decided to call it a day. Even though they had told Carl Wood to shut it when his paranoia got the better of him, the stress of worrying that Basil might be off calling the police at this very moment was getting to them. As they wrapped up, Perkins confessed that it was his birthday. He loves doing heists on his birthday, doesn't he? Does, he does, doesn't he? I didn't make that connection. <laughs> they abandoned all their gear and just stuffed the wheelie bins full of their loot. Collins had somehow managed to stay awake this time, and they told him to bring the van round. By 5.45am on Sunday morning, they had loaded it with their £14 million worth of stolen goods and screeched off. The Hatton Garden heist was completed. The following Tuesday at 8am, Kelvin Stockwell turned up for work, although something was a bit different. It didn't take too long to realise a huge burglary had taken place, and within no time, the police and detectives and press flooded Hatton Garden. A little too late. The police and forensic investigators analysed the crime scene for three straight days and they wouldn't let anybody else in, leaving all the Hatton Garden traders in the dark about whether their jewels were safe or not. The police were equally giving limited information to the press about what went on, and they put out inconsistent reports on the extent of the robbery. What was clear, however, is that the police had no idea who did it. They'd already tried to downplay the whole notification to Scotland Yard when the alarm was tripped. Firstly, they tried to say the alarm wasn't of a grade that justified a call-out, but they would investigate internally. This then led to them profusely apologising for the mistake, and the resulting inquest helped keep attention away from actually catching the robbers. The police did have some leads in all of that kit left behind, 
and in their mind was the great train robbers who were only caught because they left fingerprints on a left-behind ketchup bottle. So whilst the Met Police were busy distancing themselves from the press and all the embarrassment, the Flying Squad were focused on cracking what the press were calling the crime of the century. An ex-squad detective said, You have to give them credit for a brilliant piece of work. But that was the easy bit. Now they've got to avoid being brought to justice. He's right as well. If you climb a mountain, that's fine. That's the bit where you steal all the gold. But coming back down the mountain is the not getting caught part here. That's an excellent metaphor. Thanks, I knew I'd get there in the end. Back in the world of London's criminal masterminds, all was not well. The family had not indeed turned out to be trustworthy. Who'd have thought? Not long after the job, Perkins had received a phone call to say there'd been a little change of plan. Rather than the crew getting to keep all of their lovely diamonds, actually the family was going to take them. When Perkins told them to F off, the voice on the phone coolly explained that they had the CCTV footage of them carrying out the heist. That was one reason, but Perkins, Jones and Collins all knew full well that the family could just have them taken care of if they said no. Just a few moments after the call, Basil arrived with some heavies. He sifted out the best jewels and took them away saying he was taking them abroad to be sold, and of course the gang would get their cut. The gang was extremely dismayed. They'd spent years planning the heist, and had put their bodies on the line for it, and now a huge chunk was being taken away from them. Even though they still had millions of pounds worth of stuff, they just felt totally deflated and powerless. Taking the wealth they still had, the gang went their separate ways, agreeing to not talk for a while. Perkins did send a text message to Brian Reader to say that he would give him a share of the loot. And they say there's no honour among thieves. The police got a breakthrough when they noticed that the car Kenny Collins had driven himself into London in was a white Mercedes which had also been in the Hatton Garden area on the Friday and Saturday nights. When they checked him out, they discovered he was a lifelong criminal and a red flag went up. They put a 24-hour tail on Kenny, who spent most of his time just driving around in his Mercedes with his dog, just for fun. One of the detectives who watched him said he had one of the most boring effing lies I've ever come across for a major criminal. They must have still had their doubts though, as Kenny was 74 and he looked older than that. After a week of extreme tedium, the police were pleased to see him go for a drink in a local pub called The Castle, mainly just because it was a change. Kenny met up with a couple of other old boys, probably harmless, right? To the police's amazement, they turned out to be notorious robbers Terry Perkins and Brian Reader, and the three of them started to discuss, in detail, the Hatton Garden heist. Great moment for whoever was tailing them. In the days and weeks that followed, most of the gang met up in various combinations, excluding Basil, and the now outcast Carl Wood, who's sweating somewhere, worrying that what the family's going to have to say to him, no doubt. The police just couldn't believe this elderly gang were the ones who had pulled off the huge and daring heist. And you see the CCTV, or like secret footage, of them just all sitting around a pub, just like wantonly chatting about this huge heist that was all over the papers. I just think they didn't understand the risks. They must have, on some level, thought, like, how will the police find us? They also really did not understand how easy to monitor their phones were. They didn't know that you could track your location using your phone. All these things were not on their radar. By May, the gang had worked themselves into an absolute tiz. Between the enormous media storm around the robbery, the looming presence of the family, 
and the general anxiety felt by wondering if someone was going to inform on them. The gang were on their last nerve. They decided to chop up the loot, which meant getting it together to sort it into like even shares and get it out to fences to be sold. Fences being people who can take your stolen goods and sell them for you, turning them into relatively clean money. The gang converged on Perkins's daughter's house in Enfield, she of the fake diamond engagement ring, I assume. Within minutes of their arrival, more than a dozen police officers smashed in the front door and arrested them. They'd been waiting for this moment. They also raided Perkins's own house and found bags and bags of jewellery, watches and gemstones. Poor old Carl Wood was arrested too, although of course they didn't find any Rolexes and Sapphires in his house. The Hatton Garden gang had been nabbed and no mistake. Was that your impression <laughs> that, of a police officer? Uh, yes, an ITV police procedural police officer. With the gang, minus Basil of course, arrested, the police made their way through the stolen goods and found that most of the precious jewels and items were still missing. Neither the gang nor the police had anticipated the plans of the family. But the police had their men, more or less, and that was good enough for them. Reader's advice of keeping violence out of the picture proved to be very wise. The gang all pleaded guilty off the bat, which automatically meant they would have more lenient sentences. Adding that to the lower level of crime that robbery is, without any threat of violence, the criminals actually faced relatively light sentences. For the likes of Reader and Perkins, spending more of their senior years in jail was kind of no big deal. They preferred prison to kind of an old folks home, and they knew how to work the system. Well, you know that one of the motivations for Brian Reader might actually have been that he didn't have a pension plan in place. So like he needed the money, but also any system where he got taken care of kind of did the trick. Despite that, it's still prison. And just to highlight how they knew what they were doing... Reader was actually let out of prison just last month in July 2018, after only three years in prison. And what of the mysterious Basil? Indeed, what of him? Well, to this day, nobody knows who he is, and the criminal underbelly are rife with rumour about his identity and where he is now. Some say he double-crossed the family, while others say he's still a fearsome known criminal. And what of that safety deposit box that Basil took, ignoring the rest of the treasure? Well, it's said that that box contained a videotape which a rival gang was using to blackmail people high up in the family. So, with that leverage gone, the kingpins of the rival family then happened to find themselves knocked off just a couple of months after the Hatton Garden heist. Because they didn't have the tape anymore. So there was like nothing to prevent the family from tidying up. <gasps> family still reigning. Quite scared now. Should we definitely put this episode out? What if the family's listening? Hey, Basil. Well, that was quite a caper. Yeah, I mean, people got caught, people went to prison, people got out of prison. Um, is there any kind of lesson we learn from this? One thing that I find interesting is that they didn't recover all of the jewels and various valuables from inside the safety deposit box. And a remaining mystery is the fact that, you know, a lot of people didn't even come forward to claim their things. 
a lot of the media coverage of the robbers was actually really positive. A lot of the tabloids especially saw them as a little bit sticking it to the system, you know, Robin Hood type figures. And although I wouldn't go that far, I'd say that there is a charm to it. The fact that they kind of physically drilled through the concrete, they took all this risk upon themselves. Because frankly, most financial crime in the future is going to be like someone hacking into your bank account and just transferring it to their Bitcoin wallet or whatever. So, you know, I'm not saying that I'm on their side, but it's interesting as the probably very last heist, the very last time that people are going to get a gang together and just go for one last vault-cracking caper. Thank you for listening to Fear City, telling the tales of our very favourite city in the world and our home, London. If you like our podcast, then please subscribe or write us a review. You can also email us at londonhistorypodcast at gmail.com if you want to get in touch or let us know what topics you'd like to hear or just anything really. You can rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can tweet us at FierceCityPod and find us on Instagram. Our theme music is by Joshan Mahmood and you can find out more about his music at joshanmahmood.com. Fierce City was written and produced by the two voices you have heard. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 